The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. At the time, a lot of the facilities and services were still being provided by military contractors, in part because their withdrawal had happened very quickly. Um, and so, you know, there's an effort to transition from KBR and other military contractors who were doing food, delivery supplies, things like that, and, and transition to more civilian providers. But it was an exercise in, in improvisation in a lot of ways because you're operating in this environment that no one at the time had really clearly operated in, let alone at such a condensed time frame. Um, and so there's a lot of problems problem solving uh, and working with Iraqis, with private sector, uh, with other parts of the U.S. government to figure out, well, how do you stand up a a major embassy, a major U.S. presence in an area where particularly supply lines, other things like that, had really been run by the military for many years at that point. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 19th, 2021. U.S. troops are pulling out of Afghanistan. The withdrawal is almost done. U.S. forces turned over the Bagram airfield to Afghan forces the other day. Scott Anderson knows something about withdrawals. He served at U.S. Embassy Baghdad shortly after the United States withdrew from Iraq. He joined me in a conversation with a live lawfare audience about the Afghan withdrawal his memories of the Iraq withdrawal, and why these things sometimes go better and sometimes go worse. What has the Biden administration learned from the Iraq withdrawal experience? What is it doing right this time, and what is it doing wrong? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 19th. Scott Anderson on withdrawals, then and now. Scott, get us started. You have a very unusual window into the Afghanistan withdrawal that is going on now, which is that you were present uh, for the Iraq withdrawal. Describe that experience. What were you doing in Iraq and what was it like when we suddenly picked up and left? 
Sure. Well, I actually wasn't present in Iraq for the actual withdrawal. I arrived a couple of maybe two months, three months after with withdrawal, um, a little longer than that, actually, uh, but shortly thereafter. But a lot of my time in Iraq, where I was the legal advisor for the U.S. Embassy there, uh, I spent basically wrestling with the aftermath of withdrawal. What do you do when you have a major military mission convert suddenly into a still very large but much smaller diplomatic mission? What do you do with a different set of legal authorities, international and domestic? that that entails? How do you navigate the new set of relationships? It was a very, very uh, challenging period. I think anyone who's gone through any aspect of it will acknowledge that. And in part by virtue of having been uh, at the embassy and advising the ambassador and and kind of involved with a, a lot of management and leadership decisions there in an advisory role, I got a little bit of a unique insight from. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm hoping to be able to share with you all, as well as kind of uh, with some of those lessons that apply to Afghanistan. Many of them don't actually in kind of interesting way, either because they are, appear to be anticipated by the Biden administration or because of just different political uh, and geopolitical positions of Iraq and Afghanistan. But I think comparing them is a really useful tool for understanding what the next chapter in Afghanistan might look like. Two caveats before we start, I should note is that one, of course, I was working for the government while I was there. There's things I won't talk about, I can't talk about, I wouldn't for attorney-client privilege reasons or because it touches on something sensitive. So I may ultimately at some point say, sorry, I just can't talk about that. So please forgive me for that. I try and stay pretty far far away from stuff I worked on that's in any, in any way remotely sensitive or, or involves any sort of confidentiality. I'm going to maintain that policy today. The other thing I should note is that while I've never really worked on Afghanistan policy in any meaningful way, uh, and I'm not an Afghanistan expert, although I you know, have kind of read reading up on it and 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 know some background information. Certainly, now I, I was actually an expert witness for Afghanistan in a litigation matter last year uh, on an unrelated set of issues, largely unrelated. So I just note that here uh, for for virtue of clearing off. I don't see that as a conflict of interest. Um, I'm no, no way beholden to the Republic of Afghanistan, but I did have that relationship with them, and I did want to disclose that here. All right. So talk about showing up in Iraq at Embassy Iraq, Embassy Baghdad, right after the withdrawal of U.S. forces. What was different about it from, you know, being legal advisor anywhere else? Sure. You know, by the time I uh, arrived, we had settled down to uh, security conditions that people had figured out some of the initial loopholes. But there's a lot of anxiety kind of going to the moment. I knew I was going to Iraq probably six to eight months before I actually deployed there. So prior to the withdrawal, I think, frankly, prior even, I think I found out slightly shortly prior to even realizing we were going to be withdrawing back when negotiations were still ongoing uh, regarding a security agreement. For those who may not recall, there was a bilateral security agreement that provided the legal basis for the U.S. troop presence in Iraq that expired at the end of 2011. There was an effort to negotiate, renegotiate it, and then to negotiate a related agreement for a smaller kind of holdover force to the end of 2011. Uh, That all fell apart. I then arrived there uh, in early 2012. I think I got there in May uh, and then stayed through 2013 in October, give or take. And then I used to go back and forth to Iraq for about a year after that uh, intermittently. The thing I got that was really interesting that people didn't know exactly what it was going to be like after the troop withdrawal because it was uh, happened very quickly um, and it wasn't a scenario that we'd ever really been in in Iraq. I distinctly remember having a conversation with one of my colleagues in the office of the legal advisor at the State Department who had been there a few years ahead of me. And he said something to the effect of, oh, man, you're going to Baghdad now? 
that's crazy. I would never go to Baghdad now. I was there in 2009, 2010, which were the good days when you had a fairly strong U.S. troop presence. There's post-surge, so security situation had improved by a lot, a lot of measures at that point. Um, and he had a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen with troop withdrawal, something I had not really fully considered at the time. I had just found out I had gotten to the job a couple of days earlier and then uh, fed into perhaps a little bit of anxiety about the big move and the big choice. You know, when you arrive at uh, the embassy in a sort of environment like that, you are really arriving into a pretty hermetically sealed environment as much as you can. Um, you know, you've got security protocols that provide, uh, you know, armed guards and security caravans everywhere you go in the city. In Iraq, we had the green zone, which was an area you could get around with a lower level of security. You would take armored cars, but but you wouldn't necessarily have to have a full armored detail. You wouldn't have to wear body armor or flak jackets. If we went outside the green zone, which we did pretty regularly, even in my capacity where my, my duties were only periodically involved engaging with the Iraqis. Some of it was internally facing, some external. Um, I would go out probably at least once every two weeks, sometimes more often, sometimes less, depending on what's happening. And in those cases, you would go with a full armored contingent uh, in armored cars. You know, you would have armed guards, private security contractors, and you'd be wearing body armor and a helmet. Very uncomfortable conditions, uh, needless to say, when you're wearing also a suit uh, as a lawyer and trying to look presentable for these sorts of engagements. Uh, and the arrival, you know, was, is, is that sort of strange environment? because you're entering this area where uh, you it is being run in a kind of military-like fashion. Um, at the time, a lot of the facilities and services were still being provided by military contractors, in part because their withdrawal had happened very quickly. Um, and so you know, there's an effort to transition from KBR and other military contractors who were doing food, delivery supplies, things like that, and, and transition to more civilian providers. But it was an exercise in, in improvisation in a lot of ways because you're operating in this environment that no one at the time had really clearly operated and let alone at such a condensed time frame. Um, and so there's a lot of problem solving uh, and working with the Iraqis, with private sector, uh, with other parts of the U.S. government to figure out, well, how do you stand up a a major embassy, a major U.S. presence in an area where particularly supply lines, other things like that, had really been run by the military for many years at that point. And so what was the lesson or the, what are the lessons that you took from that regarding the right way and the wrong way to withdraw from a country that has come to rely on the U.S. military for a great deal of everything? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest lesson you, I took away, and I actually think this is something that we've seen the Biden administration acknowledge and try and address, is that it just takes time to do well. Um, you can't just pack up and leave. Um, the tail of a, any U.S. military presence is much more, uh, much larger than a lot of people anticipate. Uh, and, and it's not just the tail, like the supply tail and the personnel tail that comes with it, meaning like, you know, people are contracted to follow the equipment they leave behind. There's also just a institutional tail, a kind of ripple effect that happens when a presence as uh, significant and forceful as the U.S. military packs up and leaves and leaves behind it a lot of capacities that there's not necessarily clearly someone equipped to step into. In the case of Iraq, we had had something of a gradual withdrawal-ish uh, after 2008 when the U.N. mandate ended for the multinational force in Iraq. We transitioned to the security agreement from 2008 to 2011. And during that period, a lot of major national responsibilities for security were transitioned to Iraqi security forces, but in strong coordination with U.S. forces. So that had taken place uh, earlier than that. So United States was not 
primarily responsible at that point for securing the broader green zone or international zone. They were not responsible for manning uh, Iraqi borders. I mean, if they had been, that would have been an even more monumental task to suddenly transition all those major responsibilities over. But what the military did do is that for certainly the U.S. government and for lots of other people, they provided a key supplier route, had key contractual relationships, provided security for caravans for supplies and other materials that were really central to what was a very, very large diplomatic presence in Iraq. Uh, and so suddenly getting up and moving out there really left a big void that the State Department had to step in and say, okay, how are we going to figure out to get these supplies, get these other materials that we need, um, given that the military is no longer running flights, you know, caravans, other sorts of supply runs coming in and out. There's also an element of a uh, kind of internal process, like the military liaised with the Iraqi government in a different way than a diplomatic mission did and had lots of outstanding kind of institutional arrangements. Shifting to a more normalized relationship on a, with, on a diplomatic level creates lots of complications there. You know, you need different types of clearances and permissions um, if you are, you know, a diplomat trying to hire armed security guards because anything that the host government gives to you, they're going to feel a lot of pressure to give to other diplomatic missions. Whereas with the military, you had a unique relationship in the form of the security agreement that provided a lot of exceptionalism that was more broadly acceptable. So so moving on from that was also difficult. And the probably most, most complicated situation is just being able to adjust and operate your ability to engage, whether it's diplomatically uh, or on a security cooperation relationship with your host government, because those relationships get built up over time through certain patterns of interactions. And all of a sudden, your points of contact, your density of contacts, your number of people you have to maintain relationships with really changes. And it's happening on the U.S. side in an environment where U.S. personnel tends to turn over every six to 12 months in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, more or less often, depending on the military. Usually a year is the longest most people spend there. Some people spend a little longer, some spend two. I spent about 15 months, 16 months, uh, all around, and then back and forth for a while. Usually that institutional memory, you really come to rely upon local contractors and upon uh, routinized kind of processes and points of contact that go away when you're dramatically changing the way things are done. So all of that begs for a more gradual motion. And I think that's why you saw the Biden administration really look at what was originally a you know late winter, early spring deadline negotiated by the Trump administration with the with the Taliban in Afghanistan and said, we don't know if this is really doable. True presence in Afghanistan had declined substantially up to that point already, but there was a, still a substantial presence, perhaps as importantly and most importantly, there are lots of forward operating bases, lots of equipment around the country that hadn't yet been transitioned or turned over. And they said, well, if we're going to do this responsibly, and I would say probably not the way we did it in Iraq, where a lot of those were left as open questions um, throughout the parts of the transition. If we're going to do this responsibly, we need an extra time period. Uh, and that's why I think the Biden administration settled on, well, we're going to give ourselves an extra six months or so to get this done. We think the Taliban will accept that and not really push back on that, which is more or less true, uh, I think has proven more or less true. But it will give us the time frame we need to do this more gradually. And I, I think that's proven more or less true. It so far has looked like a much smoother endeavor uh, than the kind of rapid exit that we ended up pursuing in Iraq. What's the evidence that the withdrawal from Afghanistan has been less chaotic and smoother? You know, we we see the Taliban sweeping in in areas that they had not been before. The Bagram transfer seems like it was came as quite a surprise to the to the Afghan government and military. 
I think a lot of listeners would probably say, what's Scott talking about when he says it's gone smoother than in Iraq? What are you referring to there? Well, the thing you have to, really have to bear in mind is that in Iraq, everything happened against a very condensed time frame. So you had saw the negotiations basically break down in the fall, really like mid-fall of 2011, and then all the troops had to be out by the end of the year under the security agreement. So you had like a few month time frame for transitioning major facilities, equipment, all sorts of items to the Iraqis, taking them back to the United States with the U.S. troops that they couldn't transfer the Iraqis, giving them to third parties. It's a complicated set of logistics questions. And a lot of those questions were left unanswered till the very last minute. A lot of items got transferred to the embassy. A lot of uh, facilities were eventually wound down on the diplomatic side, but under much more difficult circumstances because you're dealing with diplomats who haven't spent time at those facilities, aren't there regularly, frankly, have much more uh, onerous security demands uh, and security standards than our military personnel. And so, you know, you end up with a situation where you do see forward operating bases, lots of equipment being left there, lots of other items. Uh, I see somebody re- referencing the Syria withdrawal in the chat window. I think that's a good example. You remember people that happened very suddenly uh, and you saw videos of Syrians or Russians at different points, or perhaps Turkish forces or associated forces in different former U.S. You know, forward operating bases or facilities, picking up various types of equipment that certainly looks sensitive, including computers in some cases, things like that. I don't think we've seen video like that, where you see it looks like it was some people got up and suddenly left. Lots gets left behind inevitably, lots of facilities, lots of equipment that just is not usable or not worth the cost of transferring it out um, by the U.S. military. And the U.S. military will often try and transfer that to the local government or to some other party locally who will be able to make use of it. But uh, nonetheless, you don't see those cases of major unintentional you know, things being left behind that are problematic um, that you see in, you see in Syria and other cases like that with a more sudden, less planned withdrawal. It's also, you know, happening at the military's own time frame. The military is ahead of their own announced schedule. I think that underscores the fact that they're comfortable with the sense to which they've met their various obligations for handling sensitive equipment, transferring these facilities, uh, pulling out their, again, their contractors, which is always a problem and other sorts of items to say, how, make sure we we are wrapping things up relatively neatly and hopefully leaving less of a, a burden on the diplomatic presence, which inevitably inherits all the sort of aspects of the bilateral relationship once the troops leave. I don't know for sure, though. I could be wrong. Certainly the security situation in Afghanistan has deteriorated rapidly and more rapidly than it did in Iraq. But I think that has a lot more to do with the different geopolitical circumstances surrounding the withdrawal, uh, less to do with the actual execution of the withdrawal on the U.S. side. So in other words, it's not a reflection if the last, you know, U.S. force leaves and two days later the Afghan government falls. That's not necessarily a reflection on the execution of the withdrawal. It could just be a reflection of the incredible weakness and fragility of that government. I, I think that's right. And the, you know, the decision to withdraw itself, you can run the most efficient, effective withdrawal in the world, but you're still inevitably exiting and leaving a security vacuum of some sort. And uh, that's going to have geopolitical circumstances. So I, I, I separate those two in my mind. There's a way to withdraw effectively. Um, and then there's the decision to withdraw itself. Um, I think this withdrawal appears to be being, being pursued very effectively. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't policy consequences and serious costs that come with the decision to withdraw that may have made it a poor decision, even if it's executed perfectly. So when you look at Afghanistan 
you know, versus the withdrawal whose aftermath you lived through, other than the effectiveness of the withdrawal itself, what are the parts of it that seem sort of similar and different to you? How much does this have a deja vu all over again feel to you? And how much of this is, you know, something new under the sun? Sure. I mean, I think one of the big differences here is the relationship with the host government as it relates to a U.S. continuing U.S. military presence or allied military presence for that matter. In Iraq, the U.S. military presence was, and frankly to this day, remains a major political sticking point. It's very unpopular politically, uh, or at least usually is, for, to have U.S. troops doing combat operations there. Um, it's always something that there is pressure against the incumbent government that allows it to happen, to say that to push back against against it. It was the big reason why we, there was the security agreement in the first place, why it expired in 2011, and then why it was not renewed is because there was this popular discontent with U.S. military presence. And that informed what the U.S. military and the United States as a whole can try and do after withdrawal. You know, you're not going to have uh, huge widespread security cooperation programs around the country because it might be perceived as looking too much like you're still occupying the country militarily or still involved in a range of combat operations. In contrast, in Afghanistan, it's a political situation that seems very open to having a continuing U.S. troop presence. It's really a U.S.-initiated withdrawal, uh, as far as we can tell. Um, certainly the Taliban as well, but that's also a separate strategic factor I can get to in a second. That is a situation where there's much more openness to say, all right, let's find other ways we can coordinate, even if you, the United States, feels like you can't have a major combat military presence like you've had for the last several years. What can we do in terms of security cooperation? What can we do in terms of, frankly, securing your own personnel? And I think that's why you see stories about there being a still substantial leave-behind military presence in Afghanistan, much more substantial than was considered or discussed or landed on, I, I should say, uh, for Iraq. You know, we're talking about, I've seen reports from 650 to 1,000, maybe more troops potentially staying in Afghanistan. That's a pretty substantial contingent. Many of them will be doing security for the embassy. Many of them will be doing uh, security cooperation, I have no doubt, with the Afghans under traditional foreign assistance legal authorities that are consistent with a diplomatic presence, not with a more specific military mission. And those options are there because of the receptiveness of the Afghan government to those sorts of assistance. So it really opens you up to a much broader range of potential activities that you can pursue there. Uh, being able to provide a bigger security footprint and more effective security footprint for diplomatic presence is also a big force multiplier for what the diplomats can do. Assistance missions need security very badly. It's really hard to go out in the field and do all sorts of foreign assistance, foreign development, security assistance without adequate security measures. State Department tends to have higher demands for security for its personnel than DOD does. DOD is a little more comfortable putting people in line of fire, often because they, are they can be deployed at times with firearms and with means of personal defense diplomats don't employ. And so, you know, if those are options, things that may be open, the Afghan government may be open to, it gives you uh, just a realm of options, a little more flexibility, and a range of possibilities that wouldn't be an available as available in a much more politically constraining context. When I look at the two countries, one of the big differences that I see is that in Iraq, we kind of thought we had it won. You know, we'd had the surge. You know, ISIS was not yet a big thing. Uh, we just killed, you know, Zarqawi. And we had this kind of idea that the 
not perhaps that the insurg we were seeing the death rows of the insurgency, but that this time we were really seeing the death rows of the insurgency. Whereas in Afghanistan, uh, you know, nobody kids themselves that we have this thing won. How much of the difference is a reflection of, of that? I, I think that's also a big factor that kind of feeds into the political factors I just noted. Uh, you know, in the Iraq circumstance, initially, it seemed like we were in a post-surge era. Security conditions were relatively okay. The greatest source of tension was really, in a lot of ways, there were very active remnants of al-Qaeda in Iraq. No one should have illusions about that and other factions. Um, but there a lot of tension, a lot of pressure on the U.S. presence was coming from, uh, you know, Iran-backed militias, which continues to this day. Uh, and that's a very different type of geopolitical environment where you have, you know, a regional actor working with local proxy forces to try and put pressure on you to constrain your operations, pressure you to withdraw, pressure you to take a bunch of other steps, which has been the modus operandi in Iraq for more than a decade now, but kind of came to the fore as the surge succeeded in putting down the worst and most visible elements of AQI, at least for a couple of years. But then in Iraq, you had the situation of the Syria civil war on its border and a part of the country that was had a very hostile relationship with the dominating uh, Maliki government, um, which was pursuing a variety of sectarian measures, very controversial measures that provided this sort of security vacuum on the border with Syria that became the doorway through which uh, what would eventually become the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant or ISIL, ISIL whatever, Daesh, whatever you want to call it was able to march into Iraq and really threaten the stability of the country to the point of, you know, being at the, the gates of two of its major cities, Baghdad and Erbil in 2014. That was not a series of events I think people fully foresaw, certainly to say the least, co coming at the end of 2011. I think they thought those major threats had been tamped down at that point. Afghanistan, it's almost like we are withdrawing. It was like almost like as if in Iraq we had waited until 2014 uh, and then begun to withdraw. Uh, you know, you have a hostile force. It's not a foreign state actor. That actually does make a difference, I think. There's a relationship, obviously, between Taliban and Pakistan and things like that. But I think it's a little different, different than Iran and the militias in Iraq. And that really, uh, the fact that you have this, this, this non-state actor hostile presence, just shapes the types of engagement you can have, the types of needs of the government that's staying behind and, and the sort of priorities. But the United States has made a decision that, you know, in spite of the fact this threat is very clear and very real, um, it's time to exit because of its own interests, because of its own needs, and because of uh, the limited options for actually making further progress there. And so, again, it's, it's, it's a different set of circumstances that bears on what the likely consequences are and, and how you go about this sort of thing. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back, and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. 
you have some questions. So uh, first question, and this, this might be beyond the scope of this podcast, but I'm sure you're, you guys are close and you can handle it. So do you think that there were any achievable goals in Afghanistan after bin Laden was taken out in Pakistan? And was it unstable, it is an unstable uh, Afghanistan, not in Pakistan, namely ISI's interests to sort of keep India um, away from sort of being a major regional power and a more stable democratic Afghanistan would have been a partner or sort of an ally of India uh, and sort of isolate Pakistan, whereas, not to answer the question, but keeping uh, Afghanistan unstable makes Pakistan uh, kind of a player in the region. That's possible. You know, I, I have to say, I'm just, I'm not an Afghanistan policy expert. So, so I, so it's a little, it's not outside the scope of the conversation at all. It's outside of my uh, particular experience and expertise, but, uh, but uh, you know, my, my guess, what I will say is that, you know, Afghanistan exists in a very different neighborhood than Iraq and in a very different relationship with its neighbors. You know, Afghanistan is a big problem for a lot of states if it were to collapse. And those states' borders are Pakistan, Iran, are going to bear the brunt of it, you know, uh, not to mention Central Asian states, a tiny slice of China, things like that. But Russia and China also have a major regional interest in this region, frankly, arguably a lot more directly than the United States does. And I think it's credible that a, a lot of what um, is kind of entering into this calculus is the idea that it's actually not in anyone's interest to have a fully destabilized Afghanistan. Um, and that a lot of the degree to which the Taliban was able to benefit from a permissive regional environment has been in response to the fact that it is a U.S. military presence backing the current government in Kabul. And that there are a lot of different actors that can bear in on the political situation in Afghanistan who haven't, so long as the United States has owned it and they've been happy to see the United States bogged down there, that uh, now may feel the need to step up and say, hey, actually, we don't we don't want to see a massive destabilization in uh, Afghanistan. The last time that happened, you saw major refugee problems, lots of regional problems, uh, but it really affected countries in the region most severely, which is a little different from Iraq and particularly Syria, actually more Syria than Iraq, even where you saw the refugee crises there really spin off and begin to move into Europe in substantial part because of the Mediterranean, because of the land routes that are available to people who are relocating there. Afghanistan is just a much harder track. Doesn't mean it won't happen. Those ramifications will hit different parts of the world, but it's most directly going to be affected, affecting the bordering states that are ones that have different relationships with the superpowers and with uh, you know US allies slash rivals than the countries around Iraq does. So, so a very different environment there. I think there's, uh, all I will say is, I think there's a really different set of interests in terms of a stable Afghanistan and a stable Iraq. And the United States has played those against those a little differently. The United States had a cooperative relationship with the states around Iraq, except for Iran, uh, where it had one major rival relationship. That's that's just different than in Afghanistan. And that will affect the outcome and, and the different states' interests in the different range of possible outcomes. Yeah, I just want to add to that, that I, I do think there was a achievable outcome post bin Laden, and it was achieved. It was a an Afghanistan that was uh, not self-sustaining, but sustainable with a relatively small long-term U.S. troop presence that took relatively light casualties. And over a protracted period of time. And we that was achievable, achieved for essentially 20 years and was achievable on exactly as long as a basis as we were willing to be committed to it. 
And we decided, uh, I guess, last year under the Trump administration and renewed in a kind of bipartisan way this year under the Biden administration, that we were no longer willing to pay the price for that. But that was actually an achievable objective, and it was an achieved objective. And if you had told, uh, it, it actually looks very similar. I know he's, we're not supposed to quote him favorably anymore, but if you go back to the op-ed that Donald Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, wrote a few days after the U.S., it's either a few days after or a few days before the U.S. went into Afghanistan, he said, don't look at, don't let's hear any talk about exit strategies. This is a long-term engagement. And that's exactly what it ended up being. And so I think, you know, whatever people say about there was a certain amount of delusional nation-building thinking about Afghanistan, actually the the outcome looked reasonably like what at least was the the more sober accounts of it at the outset would lead one to think. Uh, your second question. Thanks. Um, so we were uh, in Iraq uh, opposite sides of the withdrawal. Uh, I was mostly there 2009, sort of the end of combat operations, um, but didn't stick it out to see the end uh, of the withdrawal. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you obviously mentioned, you did a comparative earlier. Um, what do you think are some of the the conditions that could or should be set so that um, we don't have to come back in like we ended up doing in Iraq in 2014? It's a really hard question, uh, and and you know, it, a lot of time, a lot in a lot of cases, I just don't think you know you really have the ability to set those conditions because you're not dealing with an actor who who's going to accept them now the taliban you can say the conditions that they already have in place which is that you're not going to provide a haven for al-qaeda or related groups that are going to threaten the united states um you can lobby and push for uh you know a peaceful settlement uh and maybe a, perhaps some sort of you know unity government uh based in kabul that would incorporate the taliban or elements that are supportive of the taliban otherwise under the current environment um yeah you can envision a bunch of different scenarios that would say okay let's 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 see if this prevents it. But you don't really know if any of that's going to prevent a situation of deterioration in Afghanistan. Uh, and, you know, I do think that there's a, a likelihood that the deterioration in Afghanistan, you know, might be something to say pulls the United States back in at some point if they do feel like there are a new haven for for terrorist groups. Um, and I'm seeing in the chat now you're clarifying um, that you're asking more about conditions on U.S. national security interests than um, the Taliban. I mean, that's really the line, right? Like, what is the U.S. interest in Afghanistan? We can say our interest is limited to the case of where, you know, Taliban is housing al-Qaeda and they're threatening the homeland, which is, I think is more aligned the line, more or less the line the Biden administration has projected. But that might be a hard line to swallow if you're seeing Kabul get marched down and schoolgirls getting beaten and punished and a lot of things that could very well happen as a result of this. Those are going to be hard things for people to see. Remember, a whole generation of Americans have spent time in Afghanistan um, and have ties there. Now, a lot of them, I think, don't see a political solution if looking them in the eye and are saying, well, we need to exit from the for military reasons here. But 
those are still going to be really hard consequences to see. I think when we see the level of organization and pressure that was brought in the Biden administration successfully to push for a solution for former U.S. translators, that really is a reflection of that, the fact that we actually do still have a lot of vested moral, emotional, if you want to call it psychological interest in the well-being of people that a lot of Americans worked alongside for many years. And it's not easy to see those go away. And, you know, in Iraq, we did not think we were coming back into Iraq. And when we started seeing those people get threatened very aggressively and the Iraqi government become more open to it, that is what led to the new intervention. I could see the same thing happening in Afghanistan quite readily. The one thing I will say, though, is that when that happens, people say like, that's a bad thing. And I don't think, I don't know if it necessarily is. It's an opportunity to establish a new mission with new political parameters, new scope um, that might be more sustainable, might be more targeted, might better fit with the political conditions of the United States. I think that's kind of what you saw in Iraq. Like you saw a more effective military orientation in Iraq, given the very constraining political environments and the limited set of national security interests it was intended to target, which is ISIS. As that picture has gotten muddier, it's become much more complicated as the ISIS threat has receded and the military presence has become much more a problem again, especially after the Soleimani strike, all, all the things that happened at the end of the Trump administration. You know, so that that complicates it. But for several years, there was a very effective U.S. military intervention and could have been used to more effect in Iraq in terms of improving our general strategic position there if conditions were a little different in regards to the Trump administration in Iran. So so I'm not sure it's a reentry, I, don't, I think, is, is this toxic concept that I think people might warm up to down the road. And there might be good reasons to say, we, to say we're going to withdraw now, but that doesn't mean that 100% down the road, there might not be reasons that we'll have to reenter. Yeah, I just want to emphasize a point that Scott alludes to. You know, when Scott says there's a whole generation of people who have engagement with Afghanistan and who, you know, served there, worked with people, there's a flip side of that, which is that there's an entire generation of people who have no memory of the Taliban government in, in the late 90s and just how awful it was. And, you know, people, sometimes you see videos of the blowing up of the, of the, the great Buddha statues. I think it's interesting that that's the video that we always use to remind people who the Taliban is rather than the machine gunning people in the soccer stadium or the awesomely violent and horrible executions that they engaged in. These are a really, really unpleasant group of people. And, and I do think we are not, you know, maybe weeks, maybe months away from being reminded of, you know, the magnitude of our betrayal of, you know, the entire female population of a rather large country when they enter their first major city. And I do think there's, you know, without predicting that there will be enthusiasm for reentry, I do think a lot of people are going to, you know, swallow hard at that point and say, wait a minute, was there greater moral cost to walking away than, than we thought about. The floor is yours. So uh, I remember having, having this discussion a couple of months ago that there was, there was a lot of talk on Lawfare Live even about war powers. So, so do you think this withdrawal will make it more or less likely for Congress to actually take a more active, active role or will this matter not a, not a bit? It's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I think the most likely thing that Congress is likely to do 
are the activities that won't impact ongoing military operations. So I think the 2002 AUMF, I think I, Ben and I have a bet on this that we made at a prior Lawfare Live, is likely to be withdrawn this year. Right now, it looks like most likely as part of the NDAA. And that's because it's not relied on for ongoing military operations. Same for a couple of old AUMFs. You know, insofar as the United States is engaged in a narrower scope of military operations, that makes it easier to say, all right, well, maybe we can revisit the 2001 AUMF. Maybe we can even tweak a little bit uh, some of the other authorizations we have around Article 2, how the executive branch perceives its Article 2 powers, how Congress tries to regulate it. But there's kind of a countervailing pressure there. And this is something that I don't think people who are often feel very strongly about war powers always reconcile themselves with or really square off, which is that there's a tension between narrowing or being adamantly opposed to statutory authorizations for the use of force like AUMFs and then putting pressure on the executive branch to say, well, when they feel they need to act militarily, they're going to act under their Article II war powers. You know, I think most people would agree the best option is for Congress to actually give a timely, well-considered, thoughtful authorization for the limited action that it thinks is necessary. That's a hard set of conditions for Congress to often meet. They inevitably, in lots of policy areas, particularly in foreign policy and national security, have to delegate to some extent. And so the, it's the question is the right balance. Like the AUMS are definitely not the right balance, right? They're horribly, horribly fits to the current fact pattern ahead of us, which is something they never were designed to address and never anticipated. But I'm not sure the answer is no congressional authorization whatsoever, as some people in some camps will push, because that puts a lot of pressure on the executive branch to say, well, now we're going to start pursuing self-defense under Article 2, and this is enough for us. And I'm not sure you're actually, the executive branch is always going to find out it's enough for them in all these theaters unless they start pushing that concept of Article 2, or frankly, just doing it a lot more often than people really feel comfortable with. We're already seeing this tension in Iraq, which we talked about before. We've seen the Biden administration twice now take military action against Iran-backed militias in Iraq and Syria, entirely under its Article 2 powers. That's a, a difference from the Trump administration, which relied on the 2002 AUMF in part for those in 2001. And I, I think this argument is stronger under Article 2, but you do run into this problem, which is that if this is a sustained military campaign and operation, where obviously these strikes are related and they're to some extent being anticipated by the executive branch, well, then at some point, don't you turn on the 60-day clock under the War Powers Resolution? Doesn't that constitute hostilities? The, the current answer is that the executive branch clearly says it doesn't. And that's where the give is in the system, is that Congress probably would say it, it, it should, but the executive branch interprets it as it doesn't, and Congress has never come around to amend the War Powers Resolution to say, no, you do need to start getting authorization in these sorts of you know sliced operations. But if Congress did come back and install that more restrictive view, that, that puts the executive branch in a difficult position. Um, at the same time, it's not ideal that the executive branch can fudge these standards by just saying, oh, yeah, each set of airstrikes is a totally independent thing. Don't ignore those prior airstrikes. This, now the 60-day clock has started. And now the 60-day clock has started. And now it's started again. It's a very difficult balancing act. What we really need to have is a serious conversation about it and a Congress uh, and a White House that's committed to having that conversation and reaching answers. Those are just really politically different things, difficult things to achieve. We're already seeing it in kind of the rise of resistance to withdrawal from the, or the, through the repeal of the 2002 AUMF. Again, not something that anybody's relied on except for the Soleimani strike being the one serious way it's been relied on exclusively. And even then had redundant Article 2 powers was very, I think, problematic and controversial executive branch action. Doesn't impact any military operations everyone agrees wants to be ongoing, but we're seeing this new surge of resistance because people are saying, we don't want to look weak in front of Iran. Uh, we're worried about the long-term consequences. 
and it's for, I think is primarily for domestic political play. I don't think it's actually a strategic concerns. And those pressures are always there and they're easy to play into. And it always makes these conversations really complicated. I'm still optimistic we'll see some change, but I think it's going to be more around the margins in the immediate term, maybe down the road, um, you know, next Congress, next Biden in the term administration, potentially, maybe we'll have enough calm periods to add up to make more substantial changes in one direction or another. Auntie, you had a second question. So if we take the long view, do you think there are any, any lessons that can be drawn by comparing the British, the Soviet and the US experience in Afghanistan? Because there's been a total of seven invasions of Afghanistan. That's that's quite a quite a few. Yeah, absolutely. And there's seven invasions by which are basically the global powers at the time, right? Uh, that's why it's the graveyard of empires, uh, Afghanistan. And I think the answer is that like, there are geopolitical things that make Afghanistan different from a lot of other countries. The neighborhood's difficult. It's difficult for all these empires. Very few of them are truly locally located. Like maybe if Pakistan wanted to take over Afghanistan, maybe they would have a better chance because it's got supply lines and other things that you need that are much more accessible than all these superpowers have tried to do it. Although I, I, I may, may not entirely be true. You know, Russia had a reasonably proximate, uh, you know, uh, operations violence is still had a big problem. I think the real answer is, and I think it's true, frankly, of most nation building enterprises that just nation building is really, really hard. It takes an extremely long-term commitment has been alluded to with what the Bush administration kind of said up front. I don't think they said it when they were selling the war necessarily, either the, either the, in Afghanistan and Iraq, but they had, were pretty clear about it through parts of the administration. So the, their original statements, if you go back to what they said at the beginning, were measured and careful. And then they developed, you know, they held the Loya Jirga and they started getting into much more grandiose thinking about it. But, you know, when they first went in, they were much more clear headed than they were a year into it. Yeah. And look, the thing to bear in mind is think of the nation building enterprises we've we've seen be successful in like Japan and Germany. We have troops there still to this day. We don't think of it the same way because they're not under the degree of threat because it's a different type of conflict. Um, but they are there. They are under threat. And if, they, if anything were to happen to those conflicts, they would be under a lot more threat than your troops, average troops are in Iraq and Afghanistan because you'd be talking about like an armed conflict with a, you know, pure power. Think about troops in North Korean border, same same principle there, uh, which is which also played its own hand in a pseudo nation building enterprise there and had its own role in Iraq and pardon me, in Japan. So these are generational undertakings. I think the answer is that most countries, most even most world empires just are not interested in doing it and rarely find it to be in their interest to undertake them. So right, part of the reason we probably should not do it in the first place. The floor is yours. My, my question is one about if the Taliban has learned anything. I, I think they, they have an interest in preserving the withdrawal, keeping us you know, on track to complete it and not coming back anytime soon. Uh, do you think that the, the, there's anything they're willing to say, modify or tone down their behavior to preserve the withdrawal at all? Or are they entirely confident that we're going and won't be coming back? It's a really good question again. And, and again, I'm not a Taliban expert, so I'm, I, f- I don't feel fully equipped to answer this, but I'll give you my, my only moderately <laughs> informed sense of it, um, which is that the Taliban, like lots of other movements and kind of similar situations are movements like it's not a cohesive whole entirely. It is a in many ways where there are kind of elements of like leadership. There's also strong, you know, 
bandwagoning and bringing together multiple camps under kind of a single umbrella that we tend to conceptualize as the Taliban. But there's lots of independent interests within that. But they're able to come together under a particular umbrella in opposition to the United States-backed government in Kabul and, and the United States role and the fact that they have also been targeted by the United States for you know the last uh, almost 20, 20 years at this point. So you are uh, so I, I think you will see some elements of learning in some cases, like the Taliban entered into this agreement. The faction that was represented in these negotiations said in this agreement, basically, uh, yeah, Al Qaeda is not coming back. We're not going to preserve it. Who knows if they're going to be able to live up to that? They don't have a lot of infrastructural capacity. It's not like the Taliban is a government that's effective, necessarily effectively patrolling every corner of its territory. If a you know particular group, armed group that controls one wing that considers us part of this itself part of the Taliban now, but you know is a family member of the future Osama bin Laden or somebody else who wants to use part of this territory for a particular purpose, is it going to be in the interest of the main central Taliban to oppose them, to use armed force to stop them from violating this agreement? Who knows? It's going to be very circumstance specific. The thing to bear in mind is like these groups are not the type, they're not modern states. They're not states that have a hegemony on the use of force that we tend to associate with force with states. And, and for that reason, like those commitments are are all fuzzy. So even if they are entirely with the best of intentions, I'm just not sure that they are going to be in any better position to dominate and control the conditions in Afghanistan than the current Kabul government is with all the support. If anything, I suspect it will be substantially weaker. They just may be, may be willing to have, they have the cultural ties and the willingness to make the alliance and frankly, the lower level of demands that the to keep it everything under one umbrella, but it's going to be a much thinner umbrella that you know prevents them from being quite as governance oriented as as other states we might think would be. So it's a long convoluted answer, but long story, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's learning is the problem. I guess I think it's capability and capacity. Yeah. So relatedly, Annika asks, how likely is it that the withdrawal will cause another wave of refugees? moving to Europe and thereby destabilize U.S. allies further. My instinct is that the answer to that question is that Afghan refugees generally don't get as far as Europe. Uh, when Afghanistan has big waves of, of refugees, uh, they tend to go into Pakistan and elsewhere in the more immediate region. Do you have a sense of whether we're likely to see significant refugee flows and where they would be? I, I think that's generally right, although I'm going to put the same caveat about saying I'm not a, a particular expert in, the, in this region. But, you know, in Iraq and in Syria, there's a reason why you saw the refugee population push into Europe. And it really happened much more with Syria than with Iraq. A lot of the Iraq refugee problem was kept in the region somewhat consciously, right? They started funding major refugee presences in Jordan and Lebanon and Egypt, uh, and that there were big camps there, and that's where a lot of the Iraqi refugees went, uh, or if not the camps, they were, you know, integrated kind of with the local society. There are efforts to kind of keep them there, agreements with the local governments to keep them there in exchange for economic support and, and to keep the problem regionalized. That broke down with Syria in part because the region was already so saturated with Iraqi refugee uh, refugees and because Syria's a good degree closer to uh, Europe, Europe and Western allies there, and as closer to access to the Mediterranean, and so you know you saw a much bigger push from Syrian refugees into Europe. 
part of that was also a conscious policy choice on the part of Turkey, um, which we shouldn't overlook uh, having played a role in this as well. And so, you know, that is really what triggered that, what became really like a, almost existential, it's probably overselling it, but a major driver of refugee crisis in Europe that did have lots of lots of follow-on effects, including, frankly, the mobilization, I think, arguably, of the nationalist right in a lot of uh, European countries, wildly problematic on a lot of fronts. Afghanistan having the same effect, it's harder to see that because so much of the brunt is going to be held by these local um, states. And it's worth noting those many of those states, Pakistan, um, you know, Iran, obviously are not not allies of the United States, not client states of the United States. Um, if anything, they are tend to have close relationships with Russia and China. I think that's again part of the reason why. I think part of the calculus here is that they suspect when the United States stop owning Afghanistan as clearly as it has for the last several years. Other states in the region are going to feel compelled to step in and contribute, perhaps even collaborate on preventing a collapse of Afghanistan because it's not in any of their regional interests. Finally, and again, relatedly, Annika asks, since Afghan soldiers have fled to neighboring countries, is there any chance that the Taliban will follow them there and carry armed conflict into these countries? It's certainly possible, right? I mean, like, you know, the, the border between uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, is one that's probably maybe porous as being too... Famously well, porous. Famously porous. Yeah, exactly. Like kind of non-existent in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, right? I don't think that's true of a lot of other states. Again, this is my my, my limited regional expertise. I, I will caveat again. You know, a lot of the borders are in mountain areas. A lot of the borders are more firmly secure. They're away from population centers. Um, but it's certainly possible. I mean, that almost happens to some degree in all extent in this sort of conflict. But that's one reason, again, I think you are going to see regional interest in preventing that sort of full-on collapse and a lot of pressure being brought on the Taliban from a lot of different quarters. Now, will that pressure come before or after they take over Kabul? If they do, I think that's actually the bigger question, right? Like, will people feel compelled to, uh, region feel compelled to intervene to prevent the collapse of the current Afghan government? Or will they say, let it happen, and then we'll deal with the Taliban and whatever comes after with, under on our own terms? That's an open question. I don't really know. But regardless, lots of states have a, a vested interest in at least containing Afghan instability, if not preventing it. And I think you'll see that come into play here as well. We are going to leave it there. Scott Anderson, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution our audio engineer this episode is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast. Tweet us, share us on Facebook, upvote us on Reddit, pin us on Pinterest, and share us on all the social media sites we haven't heard of. Make TikTok videos about us. Leave us a rating and review wherever you found us. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.